Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 5, Hong Kong The four-engine transport had been letting down from its cruising altitude for what seemed like an hour. Rick was watching through the circular window for the first sign of land, and he was getting impatient. The trip had been a long one. It seemed to Rick that he had been sitting in the plane for most of his life even though they had been gone from Spindrift for less than four days. That was because they were making no stopovers. With San Francisco, Honolulu, Guam, and Manila, they had stopped only long enough to refuel or change planes. Scotty, in the seat next to Rick, was sound asleep. Zircon, across the aisle, was engrossed in a book. Rick looked up as the stewardess walked past. She smiled and pointed through the window on the opposite side. He caught a glimpse of mountainous country below. Then a few seconds later, a small island passed underneath on his own side. They were getting close to the ground now. He estimated their altitude at less than 2,000 feet. He poked Scotty in the ribs. Rise and shine, mighty hunter. We're getting ready to land. Scotty was wide awake instantly. About time. Show me this famous Hong Kong. Can't yet. But we've passed a couple of islands. Look, there's another. They were dropping rapidly now. The big plane suddenly banked, leveled, then banked again. As they rocked up, Rick looked down into a cove crowded with Chinese junks. The brief glimpse sent a thrill through him, as new scenes always did. They were the first junks he had seen outside of pictures. The plane banked again, the other way. Rick realized with a sudden feeling of discomfort that they were actually weaving their way through the mountain peaks. He had heard that the approach to Hong Kong was crooked as a corkscrew. Now he knew the reports didn't exaggerate. Zircon was leaning across the aisle. He pointed to a strip of curved beach. Repulse Bay, he boomed. We're almost in. The scientist had been to the Far East before, and he knew Hong Kong. They were close to the top of abrupt hills. Rick saw a road curving through the hills and valleys. Then they were over water again, and the water was dotted with modern ships as well as junks. The plane rocked far over in a tight bank. There was a howl as the flaps were lowered. Rick and Scotty buckled safety belts and sat back as the plane leveled off. In a few moments, they were collecting their luggage and walking across a concrete tarmac to the customs building. Inside, a Chinese clerk, under the supervision of a British officer, gave their effects a cursory glance, stamped their passports, and handed them police warrants to fill out. They did so as rapidly as possible, turned them in, and left the customs room. Outside, they picked up the bags they had checked, gave them to a Chinese coolie who appeared from nowhere, and followed him to a taxi. It was a small car of English make. 
Zircon looked at it with disapproval. Am I supposed to fit into that thing? he demanded. Rick hit a grin. The car wasn't much bigger than the scientist. Zircon squeezed in gingerly. Scotty behind him. Rick got into the front seat with the driver. Peninsular Hotel, Zircon directed. Funny, Scotty said. I never expected to find an airport in Hong Kong. All the pictures I've ever seen of it show mountains. Doesn't look as though there were room for an airport. There isn't, Zircon said. We're not in Hong Kong. This is Kowloon. It's a peninsula jutting out from the mainland of China. However, it's part of the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong. We'll get to the island itself and to Victoria, which is the main city, by ferry boat, or Walla Walla. What's that? Rick asked curiously. That's the local name for a water taxi, Zircon explained. The taxi was leaving the airport now, but there was nothing in sight at the moment to show that this was Asia. The modern buildings were of stone, brick, and concrete, and the streets were wide and clean. As they got closer to downtown Kowloon, however, Chinese predominated with only a sprinkling of what were evidently Englishmen. In a short time, they pulled up in front of the peninsula, one of the world's famous hotels. It was an imposing structure, the lobby as vast as an auditorium, but broken up by numerous pillars, potted plants, and dusty-looking furniture. They registered and were shown to a very large and comfortable room with a window that opened on a fire escape. As Zircon tipped the Chinese bearers, Rick asked them, What time is it? The chief bearer answered, Maybe about three, sir. And then he closed the door. About three? Rick looked at Zircon and Scotty. It's early. Let's get started right away. I'd like to find out where and what the golden mouse is. Good idea, Zircon agreed. He tossed a suitcase onto one of the three beds in the big room. Let's clean up and change quickly. We'll have time to see the council this afternoon, too. I doubt that the council closes before five o'clock. In less than half an hour, the three of them were walking from the hotel toward the waterfront. Zircon led the way. We'll take the ferry. It's very fast, he said. The ferry slip was less than a three-minute walk from the hotel, but when they started to get tickets, they remembered the changing money had completely slipped their minds. A scholarly-looking Chinese gentleman saw their plight and spoke to Zircon in faultless English with a distinct Oxford accent. Uh, perhaps I can be of service, sir. If you have an American dollar bill, I can change it for you. You will need only a little money for tickets, and there's a bank close by the ferry slip on the other side. You're very kind, Zircon replied. We'll accept your offer, sir. I do have a dollar bill, I believe. He found it and handed it to the Chinese, who counted out six Hong Kong dollars and a few tiny paper bills that represented change. The rate today is six and a fraction to one, he explained. Rick and Scotty added their thanks to Zircon's. The Chinese bowed. A pleasure to have been of such small service. He smiled and continued on his way. The Chinese are without doubt the most polite of all the Asian peoples, Zircon said. He pushed a Hong Kong dollar through the ticket window, got three tickets and some change in return. 
They pushed through the gate and walked across the dock to the ferry. As they did so, Rick got his first look at Hong Kong. He stared, amazed, his mental image of an Asian city vanishing like a bubble burst. Across the bay, a green mountain stretched like a jagged knife edge against the skyline. Here and there, far above the bay, were white blocks like granite chips, marking houses. Lower down, the city of Victoria began. It was like marble slabs piled up in an orderly array. Thinning out toward the upper side of the mountain, down at sea level, the buildings were thickly clustered. But they were modern buildings, not a trace of the ancient Orient in them. Between the ferry and Hong Kong, the bay was crowded with water traffic. Junks with gay sails sped noiselessly between puffing little tugs. Great deep-water freighters were anchored, lighters at their sides taking off cargo. Slightly to one side, the sleek line of a British cruiser was visible, and beyond that, a trio of lean, wolfish destroyers. The ferry moved away from the pier and picked up speed. Rick and Scotty watched the colorful panorama of vessels. Hong Kong was beautiful, Rick thought, and it was clean. Nor was his first impression changed when they reached the opposite shore. The ferry landed them before tall concrete buildings that shaded clean streets. A block away, they stopped to watch a three-story trolley pass by. Good gosh, looks like a skyscraper on wheels, Scotty exclaimed. And that was just the impression it gave. Zircon stopped to ask directions of a passing Englishman, then told the boys, The American consulate is only a block away. Suppose we change some money and then pay the council a visit. Rick thought quickly. We'll need money, but why do all of us have to go see the council? We could split up. Scotty and I can start locating the Golden Mouse while you're talking to the council. He probably knows all about it, Zircon pointed out. Has to be a prominent landmark, although I've never heard of it. Otherwise, Chada wouldn't have known about it. Unless it's a place Bradley told him about, Scotty said. That's possible. At any rate, we've got nothing to lose by separating for a while. I'll go see the council and find out what he knows. You two start asking questions, and I'll meet you in an hour right here. No, better still, since we'll want to eat here. I'll meet you in front of Whiteaway Laidlaw's department store. It's only a few blocks from here, and there's a good restaurant close by. Rick's memory rang a bell. Isn't Whiteaway Laidlaw in Bombay? Yes, but it's also here, in most major English cities in the Far East. The big scientist smiled. I picked it because I was sure you'd remember the name. I wasn't so sure you'd remember Huan Yuan Si's restaurant. You were right, Scotty replied with a grin. Well, let's get going. I can see a bank across the street. We can get our money changed there. It only took a few moments to exchange some of their American currency for Hong Kong dollars. The young men folded their bills, which, like all English paper money, were bigger than American bills, and tucked them into their wallets. Zircon started for the consulate with a wave of the hand and a reminder that they would get together in an hour. Now what? Scotty asked. Now we start asking questions, Rick told him. They had paused at the entrance to the bank, and the guard was standing nearby. 
His turban and neatly curled beard proclaimed him to be a Sikh, a member of the warrior Indian caste that is scattered throughout the Far East. We're looking for something called the Golden Mouse, Rick said. Can you tell us where it is? The Sikh considered, then shook his head. Not know of that one, sir. Not here. Maybe one of the bank officers would know, Scotty suggested. They stepped back inside the bank and approached a thin, young Britisher who wore tweeds in spite of the heat of the day. Rick put the question to him. The Englishman looked blank. Golden Mouse, you say? Dashed if I ever heard of it. Is it supposed to be a tourist place, do you know? We don't know. We don't have any idea, Rick answered. The young man's face expanded in a pleased smile. Don't suppose you'd consider substituting a pink rabbit? We have a restaurant of that name. Ha! Rick hit a grin. Very kind of you. I'm afraid my friend and I are allergic to rabbit fur, though. With a straight face, Scotty added, Ha! The young Englishman shook with laughter. You know, that's really very good, he said. Allergic to rabbit fur. Very good. I'm sorry, fellows. I'm afraid I can't help you locate your golden mouse. Why not try a bobby? Bobby socks or bobby pin? Scotty asked. The bank officer's eyebrows went up. Then he smiled. Oh, I see what you mean. No, it's not a joke this time. Bobby's what we call policemen, you know. Thank you very much, Rick said. Not a bit. By the way, I can make a few inquiries of the chaps who have been here for some time. They may know. If you have no luck, drop back. He offered his hand. My name is Keaton Yates. Ronald Keaton Yates. Rick and Scotty offered their names in exchange. We'll come back if we can't locate it, Rick assured him. Outside, Scotty laughed. Ha! Rick grinned. That's a famous English sense of humor, I guess. He's a good scout. Scotty nodded his agreement. Let me think about those English. They do things that seem silly to us, like wearing tweeds and bathing suit weather and cracking bad jokes. But when the chips are down, they can fight like wildcats. Suddenly he pointed. There's a policeman. Let's tackle him, Rick said, and led the way across the street. The officer was evidently a lieutenant or something of the sort because he had impressive-looking shoulder tabs on his uniform. As they came up, he was inspecting the papers of a small, hard-bitten character who wore greasy dungarees and a cap black with grease and grime. Evidently, the papers were in order, for he handed them back and said curtly, All right, my man, remember, we'll have no doings from you or your like in Hong Kong. If you're smart, you'll stick close to your ship. The man muttered something and then moved away. The officer was a tall, erect man with a cropped gray military mustache. He saw the two boys and nodded. Can I help you, lads? Perhaps you can, sir. We're looking for something called the Golden Mouse. The officer's eyes narrowed. Or, you know, what would you want with the Golden Mouse, if I may inquire? We're supposed to meet a friend there, Scotty said. The tone of the officer's voice told Rick that something was very wrong. He asked, Is something wrong with the Golden Mouse? I mean, we don't even know what it is. A good thing for you not to know, the officer retorted. You're Americans, eh? Yes, sir, Scotty said. Then the Hong Kong force is responsible for seeing that you have a pleasant and safe visit. I warn you, keep away from the Golden Mouse. 
He turned on his heel and walked off. Rick and Scotty stared after his retreating figure and then stared at each other. What was that about? Scotty wanted to know. Rick frowned. There must be something fishy about this golden mouse. From the way he talks, it's a place. But I wonder what kind. A cockney voice spoke from behind them. Oh, that's a thing I could tell you, lads. Always providing you was willing to part with half a quid or so. It was the man the officer had warned to stick close to his ship. He winked at them. Come over here where that blinking peeler can't see us. He motioned to the shadow of a hallway. Inside, he grinned at them. I heard that lot of garbage the copper was handing you, and I says, here's a chance to do a bit of fiver for a couple of rinch yanks. And I says to myself, likely they'll part with a few bob to buy old bird a bit of tea. Rick pulled out a couple of Hong Kong dollars. We'll pay you. Now tell us what the golden mouse is and where it is. Bert pocketed the notes. As to what it is, it's a kind of restaurant, you might say. It has entertainment and food and drink. And you'll find a few of the lads there for company most any night. It's a fair popular place, is the Golden Mouse. He grinned, and there was a gap where his two front teeth should have been. As to where it is, well, that's not so easy to tell a bear what don't know how to get around. But you just get a couple of rickshaws, and you say to the coolies to take you to Captain Charlie's place. They'll know it right enough. He spat expertly at a cockroach that scuttled past. But take a tip from old Bert. Don't go there. Stay clear of Canton Charlie's. Why? Rick demanded. Never you mind why. Just stay clear. Bert's warning you. We want to know why, Scotty insisted. Bert grinned evilly. Righto. Lads want to know. And Bert's an obliging gent. You go to Canton Charlie's, and I'll make a bet I will. I'll bet you'll be outside again in half an hour, maybe less. His grin widened. But will you know you're outside? Not you, and why? On accounts of you'll be laying in a ditch somewheres with your throats cut. That's why. He pushed past and left them standing in the doorway, staring at each other. Chapter 6. The Golden Mouse Hobart Zircon listened to Rick's report on the boy's findings. Then he made an abrupt change of plans. Instead of eating in Hong Kong, they took the ferry back to the hotel and took from their suitcases the old clothes that each had brought to wear on the trail and to give them the look of experienced hunters. As Steve had pointed out, only amateurs go in for fancy togs as a rule. The experienced prefer tough, ordinary clothes like dungarees and denim shirts. As they unpacked, Scotty asked, Is it safe to leave our rifles and Rick's camera and all this scientific stuff you brought here? He referred to some of the delicate equipment packed in the special case the Zircon had brought from Spindrift for investigating the heavy water they hoped to find. It's perfectly safe, Zircon assured him. In reputable hotels of this sort, the Chinese help is scrupulously honest. You could leave money lying around, and it would never be touched. He had already reported on his conversation with the Consul General. There had been no word from Bradley, although Steve's instructions to cooperate with the Spindrift Party had arrived. The American official had promised to get in touch with them if Bradley turned up. 
He had never heard of the Golden Mouse. I think we had better try to get in touch with Chada right away, the scientist said. So let's have a bite to eat, and then go have a look at this Golden Mouse, or Canton Charlie's, or whatever it's called. From the description, I'd say it's typical of a certain kind of place where toughs hang out. Every city in Asia has several. If we wear these old clothes, we'll be less conspicuous. In a short time, they were in Hong Kong again. Zircon hailed three rickshaws, and they got in. Canton Charlie's, the scientist commanded. Chop, chop. The rickshaw boys started off at a trot. The way led along the bay shore, past wharves and piers, until they were out of the central part of the city, and moving into a section that was more as Rick had imagined an Asian city to be. The streets were wide but lined with board front windows. The signs were all in Chinese and usually painted in gaudy colors. There were no Englishmen in sight now, nor did they see any policemen. It was a long way. They had left their hotel in full daylight, but dust settled before the coolies finally turned off the main road. They went into a narrow street, then turned down another and still another. With each turn, the streets narrowed further and the light grew dimmer. How had Chada heard of a place in such a poor quarter of the city, Rick wondered. Presently the rickshaws drew up in a dismal corner of what was little more than an alleyway. They were in front of a low wooden building, with windows that hadn't been cleaned in years. Above the double door was a faded painting, illumined by a single electric light bulb. The painting was probably supposed to represent a mouse. Once long ago, it had evidently been yellow. Now it was so glazed with grime that it was hard to tell what color it was. Rick stepped down from the rickshaw, sniffing the combined odors of garlic, pungent sauces, filth, and stale beer. Scotty joined him, and they waited for the scientist to take the lead. Zircon handed some money to the coolies and ordered them to wait. Then he motioned to the boys and led the way to the door. It opened on a large room dimly lit by faded Chinese lanterns that hung over low-powered bulbs. The walls were covered with a grimy paper of faded yellow on which unskilled drawings of mice at play were clustered. The floor was crowded with tables, and each table was covered with a yellow checkered tablecloth. So far as Rick could see, there wasn't a clean tablecloth in the lot. In the front of the room was a long bar of scarred teakwood. Behind that were row after row of ordinary ten-cent store water tumblers. Rick guessed Canton Charlie's clients weren't fussy about drinking from fine crystal. Next to one wall, a white man in rumpled, dirty dungarees was sleeping with head down on the table. His snores were not musical. At one of the tables near the opposite wall, a dark-skinned man in a seaman's woolen cap sat paring his nails with a knife easily a foot long. Zircon motioned to the boys and they sat down at one of the tables. It's too early for many customers, I suppose, but somebody in charge has to be here. He banged on the table and lowered his voice. How do you like that guy over there? Portuguese sailor from the look of him. In a moment, 
Dingy curtains parted next to the bar and a man emerged. At a guess, he was Spanish. And he's got a knife a foot long, too, under that apron. He looks like the type, Scotty whispered. Rick nodded. Scotty was so right. The man's heavy-lidded eyes were set in a swarthy face whose most prominent feature was a broken nose, flattened probably with some weapon like a hard-swung bottle. A white scar across his chin indicated it might have been a broken bottle. He was medium-tall and he wore a cap that might have been white once. An apron covered loose black Chinese shirt and trousers. Rick was glad big Hobart Zircon was sitting next to him. The man walked to the table and greeted them in a surprisingly soft voice in which there was an accent that Rick couldn't identify. You're a little early, gents, but I can take care of you. What'll you have? Chada, Zircon said flatly. The man's eyes narrowed. You better have a drink and sit tight. Why? You'll see. What do you drink? Zircon ignored the question. Who are you? Canton Charlie, what do you drink? What have you got? There was a ghost of a smile on the scarred face. Don't worry, I'll fix you up. He clapped his hands. An elderly Chinese in dirty whites shuffled out. Canton Charlie spoke a few words of sing-song Cantonese, and the old man nodded. Sit tight, right here, Charlie said again and walked away. A lot of fine, useful information we're getting out of this, Scotty grumbled. Wonder how long we'll have to sit in this flea bag of a place. Hard to say, Zircon replied, but Charlie seemed friendly enough. The old Chinese was shuffling across the floor with a tray that held three tumblers of dark liquid. Wonder what he's going to give us, Rick said. Probably dragon blood. The Chinese put the glasses down in front of them and patted off again. Scotty picked up his glass and sniffed, and a grin split his face. Dragon blood, huh? Ten thousand miles from home and the worst dive in Hong Kong? And what do we drink? It's Coca-Cola. Rick laughed. American civilization in the mysterious East. That suits me. Coke is probably the only thing in the house fit to drink. The Portuguese finished the drink that had been in front of him, gave his nails a last inspection, stowed his knife in a leg sheath, and left. He hadn't even looked at them. He's probably going to find a blowtorch to shave with, Zircon rumbled. He motioned toward the door. New customers coming in. They were the first of many. Within a half an hour, the room was filled with a strange assortment. British, American, French, Dutch, Portuguese, even Filipino sailors, and men of uncertain professions who ranged in complexion from pure Chinese to pure black. Many were Eurasians, and of the Eurasians, a large percentage were of mixed Chinese and Portuguese blood. Zircon reminded the boys that the Portuguese colony of Macau was only half an afternoon's boat trip south of Hong Kong. By and large, Rick decided, Canton Charlie's customers were as tough a looking bunch of pirates as he had ever seen. They applauded noisily by banging glasses on tables, 
as a disreputable lot of musicians appeared and began to make the night hideous with what seemed to be a Chinese version of a Strauss waltz. By this time the room was so blue with cigar and cigarette smoke and so noisy with coarse chatter and a half a dozen tongues that it was hard to even see or hear your neighbor. Again, Rick wondered, how had Chada ever heard about this place? He sipped on his third Coke and leaned over toward Zircon and Scotty. I wonder what's keeping Canton Charlie. Zircon shrugged expressively. Can't do a thing but wait, Rick. Fortunately, the wait was not much longer. A Chinese shuffled past and dropped a folded note on the table. Before they could question him, he made his way among the tables and was gone. Zircon picked up the note and glanced through it and handed it to Scotty. Rick read over his friend's shoulder. The note was scrawled in pencil, as though written in haste. To find the one you want, go to the end of the street of the three blind fishermen. Go to the junk with purple sails. Well, let's get started, Rick said. He rose to his feet. Zircon tossed money onto the table. The three of them made their way through the noisy mob of roughnecks and out the door. Rick breathed deeply when they were back out on the narrow street. You know, even with the garlic, this air smells better than what we left inside, Scotty said. Why do you think Canton Charlie didn't deliver that message himself? Maybe he's not mixed up in it, Rick suggested. Maybe he just had orders to let somebody know when we showed up. We'll know soon enough, Zircon predicted. As the three rickshaw coolies materialized from the darkness where they'd been waiting, the Americans climbed in. Zircon asked, You know the street called Three Blind Fishermen? One of the rickshaw boys nodded. Not far. We go? Yeah. The rickshaws lurched forward. Inside the Golden Mouse, Canton Charlie started for the table where the three had been waiting. He stopped short as he saw they were no longer there, turned on his heel and hurried into an inner room. He spoke quick words to a slim Chinese-Portuguese half-caste who immediately hurried out the back door. Once in the open, the slim man ran as though devils were after him. Chapter 7 The Junk with Purple Sails For perhaps ten minutes, Rick, Scotty, and Zircon sat in the rickshaws while the coolies pulled them through dark streets with no more noise than the occasional creaking of a wheel or the slapping of bare feet on pavement. There were houses on both sides of the streets, but only now and then did a light show through the impenetrable darkness. Rick finally sensed that they were near the water by a feeling of greater space around him rather than by anything he could actually see. A moment later, he heard the lapping of water against a pier. He was tense with excitement now. The first part of the journey was coming to an end, and in a few minutes they would be hearing Chada's story. The rickshaws drew to a stop and the coolies dropped the shafts so their passengers could climb out. The coolie who spoke the best English asked hesitantly, You pay now, sir. We no wait here, yes? Very well. Zircon paid the boy's fare and his own. I don't suppose there's any reason to have them wait since this is our destination. 
Chada's friends doubtly will provide a ride for the return journey. I don't like this, Scotty whispered. You know, there's something real funny about this whole business. I feel it. But where's this junk? Rick demanded softly. I can't see a thing. We'll wait for a bit, Zircon said quietly, and we'll be on our guard just in case Scotty's intuition is right. They waited quietly, leaning against what seemed to be a warehouse for what felt like five minutes, but was probably only two. Then Rick heard the mutter of voices and the splash of something moving in the water. The sounds were followed by a bumping and scraping against the pier that jutted into the water. Be ready, Zircon commanded in a whisper. Be ready. As he said this, a bullseye lantern made circles in the night, outlining the high stern and the bow of a junk. The lantern swung upward, revealing the junk's sails. They were purple. Zircon led the way down the pier to the junk. Jada, he called softly. An accented voice answered, Come aboard. The lantern played on the pier's edge to guide them. Following its light, they jumped from the pier into a litter of rope, boxes, and gear in the middle of an uneven deck. The stench that smote their nostrils was terrible. Probably the vessel had been cleaned since it was built. Rick coughed from the foul odor and then raised his voice. Chada, where are you? From somewhere, the same accented voice replied, We take you to him. Sit down and wait. Rick turned in the direction from which the voice had come. He guessed that the speaker was in the stern, although it was hard to tell which was which. Then he saw a few lights along the shore change position, and they knew they were moving. For no reason, he had a sudden impulse to jump back on the pier. He took Scotty's arm. We're moving! I know, and I don't like it. Scotty's voice sounded grim. Zircon, a huge bulk in the darkness, leaned close. His usually booming voice was barely audible. Stand back to back. The three of us making a triangle. Then feel around on the deck and try to find something to use as a club. I agree with Scotty. Something is very fishy here. If Chada's anywhere within reach, he would have come himself. He wouldn't have just sent somebody. The boys whispered agreement. They turned so that Rick felt Scotty's arm on his left side and Zircon's on his right. He stooped and pawed through the clutter on the deck. His groping hand found a slender piece of wood that he rejected at first, and then, when he failed to see anything else, groped around and found it again. At best, it was a poor weapon. They settled down to wait. The junk was just barely making headway, and as they stood waiting, their vision cleared a little, or perhaps distant lights on the shore provided faint illumination. Rick could make out two men poling the junk from the stern. Far out in the water came the sound of a fast-moving craft of some sort. Then a searchlight probed the water briefly. From aft came a muttered exclamation, then rapid orders in liquid Cantonese. Scotty's elbows dug into Rick's back. They're coming, 
he said tensely. Dark figures hurtled at the three. A flying body slammed into Rick, smashing him to the deck. He lost the stick, but struck out with his fists. He heard Zircon roar like a wounded bull. Rick fought valiantly. Two men were on him, struggling to tie him with lengths of rope. Once, he felt the rope pulled across his cheek, leaving a burning sensation. He sensed, rather than heard, the crashing and shouting around him. Then he wriggled out from under his assailants and staggered to his feet. Instantly, one of the men fell upon him. Fall flat! Sircon bellowed. Rick did so, on the instant. There was the sound of a baseball bat smacking a steer, and for an instant, the deck was miraculously clear. Zircon had found a piece of two-by-four lumber about eight feet long, and he was swinging it like a flail. The accented voice called, Drop it, or we shoot! A figure swung upright next to Rick and threw something. There was a grunt and a crash as the man who had called went down. Got him, Scotty said with satisfaction. A voice rattled orders in Camp Knees. The polars from the stern advanced, their long poles held out like lances. Zircon was their target. Scotty whispered, Let him get close. You take the lift, I'll take the right. Go under the poles. For a heartbeat there was quiet. Rick divined the strategy. The pole men would lunge at Zircon, then the rest would leap. He didn't know how many there were of the enemy. He thought that there had to be at least seven. He flattened out, eyes on the left pole man, ready to spring. The poles came near, and one was over him. Now, Scotty hissed. Rick went forward, scrambling, legs driving. It was football, but easier. His shoulder caught the pole man in the stomach, and he lifted. The man went flying. Next to him, he heard a dull thud, and he saw Scotty stand up, looming large in the darkness. But the rest of the crew had charged. For a moment, Zircon's lumber wreaked havoc. Then he struck a part of the junk, and the two-by-four splintered. He let out a yell of rage and flung himself on the nearest man, lifted him bodily, and threw him at the others. Yellow light pierced the darkness from the direction of the shore, and a voice screamed, Yanks, over the side! Swim here! Get going, Zircon howled. I'll cover you. Rick took heart. He ran to the side and jumped feet first. Scotty came within a hair of landing on top of him. From overhead came cries of rage and another bellow from Zircon. The next instant, the scientist plunged into the water with them. Swim for it, he commanded. He rose high out of the water and yelled, Turn those lights out! The automobile lights that had illumined the scene blinked out. The voice called back, Hurry! The junk is putting about! Rick was swimming at his best speed, head down in a powerful crawl. But he took time to look back over his shoulder. The junk was turning. He knew with despair it could run them down easily. The shore was a long distance away. Spread out, he called. Then they can't get us all. He put his head down and cut through the water like a fish. If only there were time to undress. But he didn't dare pause even long enough to untie his shoes. The swim was a nightmare. Every few moments the auto lights blinked briefly 
as their unknown friend gave them a course to steer by. Rick looked back once, and the junk had straightened down and was gaining on them. He redoubled his efforts. Scotty was even with him, but Zircon was pulling ahead. He heard voices close behind and cast a glance back. The junk with the purple sails was perilously close. He drew new strength from somewhere and forged ahead. The swimmers had closed the distance rapidly. The next time the lights blinked, Rick could make out two figures standing next to the car. He could hear the creaking of gear on the junk and the grunts of the pole man, and the sounds were close. He lifted his voice in a cry for help. They're on top of us! The car lights blinked on and held the junk in their glare. A gun fired once from the shore. Rick saw the orange spurt. Then he heard a cry from almost overhead, and the junk veered sharply. I ain't go right, Scotty called, and Rick saw that they were almost at the tip of the pier. He put on a last spurt, caught a pile, and pulled himself up by its lashings. In a moment, all three of them were running down the pier toward the waiting car. The lights came on, and a British voice called, In the car, hurry! That's the bank clerk, Scotty gasped. And it was. Ronald Keaton Yates ran to meet them. Do hurry, he exclaimed. We think someone from this end has gone for reinforcements for your friends yonder. The three followed into the car a touring sedan of British make. Rick sensed that somebody was behind him and started to turn, but a soft voice whispered in his ear, Keep looking ahead. Get to your hotel and wait there for a phone call. They piled into the car, wet clothes and all. Keaton Yates ran to the driver's seat and then stopped. I say, where did that other chap go to? What other chap? Zircon asked. Uh, Eurasian. He's the one who led me here. Who fired that shot. Dashed on civilized, but I guess it saved your bacon, rather. No matter. He's vanished, and that's the end to it. The young Englishman had been peering into the shadows. We'll hie on our merry way and leave him to his own devices. Rick started to mention the message that had been whispered in his ear and then decided not to, although he couldn't have explained why. The car roared into life. Keaton Yates spun the wheel, and they raced up the street, the buildings magnifying the sound of their passing into thunder. Not until they were on the main street was there quiet enough for conversation. Then Zircon demanded, Would you mind giving us an explanation? We're kinda interested. Rather, Keaton Yates said. I met Brandt and Scott this afternoon when they inquired from me the way to the Golden Mouse. I'd never heard of the creature, as I told them. They rejected my offer of some other sort of animal. Ha! But after they had gone, I made inquiries. I learned that this Golden Mouse was a dive of the most unsavory character. He stared around a group of rickshaws, and Rick clutched the back of the front seat. He was having a fine case of jitters because the Englishman was driving on what appeared to Rick to be the wrong side of the road. Even when he realized that left-hand driving was the rule in Hong Kong, dodging cars on the wrong side left him rattled. I worried a bit, Keaton Yates went on. Even made a phone call or two. Discovered Branton Scott would register at the Peninsula Hotel. By the time I phoned there, they had gone out. 
Having no engagements, I decided to look up this golden mouse place and at least add another soul to the party for safety's sake, so to speak. However, I never got in, for just as I turned into the proper alley after a bit of searching, this Eurasian chap jumped on my running board. He asked, did I care to help out three Americans who were in trouble? I assured him it would be a pleasure, but I was already committed to two Americans in a manner of speaking. He demanded names. I gave him the two I knew, and he said you were mixed up in this affair in which he was taking a hand. I told him to get aboard, and he did so. We tore around odd streets for some time. My nose is insulted from the things I've smelled tonight, I can assure you. And we were about to throw in our cards, then, as luck would have it, we spotted three rickshaw coolies. And bless me if they didn't turn out to be yours. We sped down that blind fisherman street, just in time to hear the most infernal commotion out in the bay. And the rest, well, you know that. There was no adequate way of thanking Keaton Yates. Without his kindly interest in two strangers, they would doubtly have lost their lives. And when they told him as much, he just laughed it off. Oh, I'm sure that's overdoing it a bit. What that crew was probably after was a bit of ransom. Pirates are still something of a problem around here, you know. We've had regular ocean-going craft picked off by them and held. I enjoyed it immensely. And if thanks I'll do, I'll give them to you. Life was getting to be a bit of a bore. And that settled it, so far as Keaton Yace was concerned. He drove them to the Kowloon Ferry, but suggested they take a Walla Walla in view of their disreputable appearance. As they shook hands all around, he said, Oldest thing to me, the most curious business, was that chap who watched us. Not the Eurasian, another one. It was because of him we suspected the new recruits were our pirate friends on the way. What did he look like? Rick asked. I can't say. We never did see his face, or any of him for that matter. Somewhere up the alley was an open door, and he was standing in it against the light. At least I believe that was the case. For all we saw was his shadow, and a most unusual shadow at that. It was so long and thin, it looked like a pole with head and limbs. Our Eurasian friend was a bit disturbed by it too. He mumbled something about blowing the creature's head off if he stepped out of his doorway. But you didn't see anything except the shadow, Scotty asked. Not a blessed thing. There was just that form outlined in light, stretching clear across the alley. It was uncanny, because to cast a shadow such as that, the bloke must have been ten feet high and no thicker than a pencil. They had found the golden mouse. Now another bit of Chada's cable had come to life. Rick's lips formed the words, The Long Shadow!